Thank you very much. Ecclesiastes this morning. Go to the book of Ecclesiastes. For those of you who are newer to grace, it's Old Testament wisdom literature. And go to the book of Psalms and head to the right. A couple more books. You'll find uh, this unique name, a title for a book. It's really given to a group of people who have been called out to learn wisdom and how to live life. Uh, It's really what it is. And uh, we've given an overview of this book together, divided it up into sections, recognized how each section has concluded. Um, You can go back and and review those online uh, if you desire. Last week we began to conclude our overview of this book, which we have not gotten into its uh, sections yet, but just concluding an overview and uh, discussing um, how God is uh, portrayed, how he is discussed uh, in this book. Um, This is a book of wisdom given by an old king. Uh, He's reigned for handful of decades in his life. He's at the end of his life. He's looking back over the shoulder of his life and he's saying, you know what? I made a lot of mistakes and there was a few things that I did well. And the summary of all things is this, um, fear God and keep his commandments. And then he's going to go back and he's going to detail out for us what it means to fear God and, and uh, keep his commandments Uh, as we persevere through the the ups and downs and the twists and turns of life. And uh, and if we're going to understand God's wisdom, we've got to understand the God of wisdom. And last week we began to look at how God is portrayed four different ways in this very short wisdom book. And we looked at God as creator and a handful of different specific aspects of what it means that God is our creator. We also studied together that that God is our wise sovereign. Uh, God is our wise sovereign. And uh, we looked at a couple texts uh, within the book of Ecclesiastes that tell us that he's our sovereign. And uh, go with me to chapter 3, if you will, this morning, and we'll begin there as we continue on understanding what it means that God is our wise sovereign. As you're turning there, I did make a little bit of a, a verbal mistake earlier. The Lord's Supper will be tonight, so I don't want any of you to miss that. Uh, next week, it will not be next week, it'll be tonight, and um, because it is such an important opportunity for us in worship, I wanted to clarify that. Next week, we'll all still be given to um, a wonderful opportunity to tell everyone here in a worship format all that God's doing and that he will, he will be doing. God is our wise sovereign. And considering any part of life, really apart from this, our wise sovereign, will really just lead us to despair. Uh, Considering any part of our life without understanding this reality that God is sovereign, he is in complete control over all things, especially every detail of our lives, will just lead to complete despair. And that's true, isn't it? Left to our own reasoning, left to our own rationalization of life and its ups and downs, uh, it really leads to a dead end of despair. But when we look at life according to God's sovereignty as is uh, demonstrated for us here in this book, we don't leave ourselves in a place of despair. We leave ourselves in a place of delight, quite frankly. Because all that God governs, he governs unto his own glory and our good. All that God governs, he governs unto his own glory and our specific good. And we're going to see that here uh, this morning. Look at chapter 3 and verse 14. I know we've highlighted this a little bit in the past, but I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it, for God has so worked that men should fear him. 
Providence, as God sees the future, because he lives in eternity, God still lives a thousand years ago, and he lives a thousand years in the future. He's not bound by time, so he's able to govern time that we understand and time that we live. And providence, right, a Latin term means to see the future. Providence assures us that there is a reason for everything, even though the reason may only be known to God. And God determines our individual times. Right there above chapter number three, all right, we're given 14 pairs of 28 specific items that God has determined for all of us to experience. Many of you that have read your Bibles often are very familiar with Ecclesiastes chapter 3. All 28 items are given to us to express the whole idea of what all of us will experience in life. And according to chapter 3 and verse 14, which follows chapter 3 verses 1 through 8 and verse 11... All of this, God has intentionally designed in a specific way for you to live your life and to trust him. You're familiar with these, aren't you? Verse 2, the time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot. What is planted? A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away. It's a great verse for my tendency to hoard. Right? <laughs> a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Really what the Lord's saying is he's got the whole world, your personal world even, completely in his hands. Even the opposites as seen in the 14 pairs of reality show us the totality of life lived. So from your first breath to your last breath and everything in between. God's got this, and it's for his glory and for your good. We here see that God specifically determines our individual circumstances. Ecclesiastes will reveal that God has given us our lot in this life, and a righteous person finds satisfaction there. Look at chapter 9 and verse 9 with me as we continue on in our overview. Chapter 9 and verse number 9. God determines our circumstances and a righteous person is to find satisfaction in the circumstances that God has ordained for us to live. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun, for this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. You see that phrase there, enjoy life, in the Hebrew tongue, that simply means see life. Experience life is what it means. The totality of all the circumstances in which God has given to you to live, they are His circumstances. So we always talk about, don't let our circumstances control our life. But yet we are to consider our circumstances, that they are gifts from God for His glory and our good. See life experience life. God has made us to enjoy these domestic social experiences even. And those circumstances are primarily found 
not just domestically, but vocationally and so forth, as we'll see throughout the book. He's asked us to, within this book, enjoy work. Five times in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon reminds us God has gifted us with our vocation. You say, well, I don't like my job. Okay. Or I really like my job. Okay. Experience life. See life, whether you like it or whether you don't. God has governed the circumstance of your vocation. Currently. Often you'll see people tweet that, you know, you'll really find your niche in life when you really love your work. That's a lie. <laughs> That's a lie. What happens if our sovereign God has determined it for his glory and for your good not to like your job? But he wants you to entrust yourself to him as a faithful creator while you continue to do your job well. Because maybe there's another eternal why you're supposed to be living out in that vocation at that time. We can't live our lives to get out of a situation that we don't vocationally like. He says, embrace work. These are the circumstances that God's given to you. Do your job. Do your job. As 1 Peter chapter 2, and then to that chapter tells us that there is no glory for a Christian who has a job that can do a good job for a boss they like. But the glory is really for a Christian in doing a job well done for a boss that's hard to work for. It's difficult. Work. And he says, enjoy it. Whether you like it or not. What are we enjoying? We're enjoying the opportunity of it. We're enjoying the fact that God has commanded us to work. And so we're enjoying the fact that we're obeying his command. Amen. It's part of the Edenic curse, right? The Adamic curse. <laughs> You're going to work. And it says there, you're going to work and you're always going to be happy. Right? You're going to work by the sweat of your brow and it's going to be painful. It's going to be egregious. But you work. And this is what God's done. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, if a man's not going to work, then he shouldn't eat. Paul says later in the pastorals, if a man doesn't care for his family through his vocation, that he's worse than an unbeliever. Work is work. So enjoy and take full advantage of the opportunity to obey God, but understand that in that opportunity, the profitability of that job financially is not what you are to rejoice in. The profitability here is just to enjoy the circumstance of what that vocational opportunity offers for your own personal and spiritual growth at that time you have that job. And remember, fear God and keep his commandments. There's some eternal why as, you, as to why you have that job at this time that you may not like. Lift up your eyes, the fields are white in the harvest. <laughs> So again, the profitability is not found merely in any advantage you get practically from having that job, but just really taking advantage of the opportunity. And God has determined what job you should have. And we labor well because he chose our job, regardless of the circumstances. When life gets tough, just keep living. Keep busy. Ecclesiastes tells us that he determines everything for our good. Look at chapter 2 and verse 26. Not just our jobs, but every circumstances. Chapter 2 and verse 26. For to a person, for to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom 
and knowledge and joy. While to the sinner he is given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. He determines everything for my good as one of his righteous ones in Christ. Go over to chapter 7 and verse 14 this morning. Again, underpinning this reality that God determines everything as my for my good. He says, in the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Solomon is teaching us here that God gives good days and bad days for the purpose of bringing us to the end of ourselves and finding complete satisfaction in him. Whether God's people come to lean on him completely or not, they need to realize that they should, and this is for their good. Because he's orchestrated these good and bad times for your own spiritual development. God is a good sovereign. He is your good sovereign. And I would have to say as a human being, fallen but saved by grace, out of all four ways that God is portrayed or discussed by Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, this is the toughest pill for me to swallow. I have always personally found more duress in the sovereignty of God than peace, and that's my own sinful proclamation to you. I like to govern my circumstances. I like to think that if it's a circumstance that I don't like, that I don't want to be there. And I would like to work my way out of it, quite frankly. I'm a results guy. And if it's tough, there's got to be a better way. This can't be what it's supposed to be. And sometimes I just have to go back to 714 and say, you know what, maybe God orchestrated this for me, so I learned to delight in him. And to actually believe, surrender my mind to the reality that this is exactly what I needed for his glory and for my good. That if I could figure out a better way, that it would not be for my good and for his glory. So pray for your pastor that he finds the doctrine of the sovereignty of God to bring more peace than to rest to his soul. And you're thinking, boy, you should way be into that already. And you may not have confidence in me anymore, but I'm just telling you where I'm at and what I struggle with as a human. And and maybe you struggle there too. And if not, I need to learn from you and to grow up. Okay? Solomon portrays our God as our personal perfect judge. Our personal perfect judge. You say, yes, I believe that for me, but where is God's justice in the world? Where is God's justice in the world? How in the world can we um, see justice in a world where 59 souls are tragically and senselessly slaughtered in a mosque in New Zealand? Where's the justice in that? And we should mourn the loss of those innocent folks who just went to church. The senseless killing of these souls. And our whole country does mourn for the country of New Zealand. And yet, in the state of New York, we pass a law that slaughters thousands of the most innocent little lives in a most heinous way. And yet the same people that mourn the slaughter of 59 souls in a mosque in New Zealand rejoice over passing legislation to slaughter babies. What a gross paradox. Isn't the slaughter of innocent lives as they worship in freedom and the slaughter of innocent little ones about to be born into the same freedom? both the darkest form of evil you can imagine. 
59 souls are slaughtered in New Zealand, in the state of New York. The latest polls, that, stats that we have in 2016. And in the state of New York, you don't have to mandate as an abortion clinic. It's, it's not mandated upon you to report how many abortions that you perform. So only 42%, right, there, excuse me, there's 42% that have yet unreported, and the last tabulation they have is 2016, and 87,325 babies were slaughtered, and yet the same people who mourn 59 souls in New Zealand rejoice over killing, slaughtering thousands. Where's the justice, you know? When's it all going to stop? Well, the teacher, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, helps us understand and make sense out of all of this, and not just for people nationally or globally, but for us personally. Remember, this is his personal report of his own life and what he learned from the wisdom of God for himself. And it was the preacher's opinion at, at times in his life that, that wickedness was in the place of judgment and sin was in the place of righteousness. He said, this is just the state of living in a fallen world. Look at chapter 3 and verse 16 with me, if you would. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is Wickedness. It's like the prophet said that men have begun to call evil good and good evil. Where's the justice? Well, the preacher would like to remind us, and as he's already done, he'd like to remind us again that God's justice is, first of all, absolutely comprehensive. Go to chapter 12 and verse 14, which we've read in previous weeks. The final verse of the whole book of wisdom. For God will bring every act into judgment. Everything which is hidden, that which is done in secret even, whether it is good or whether it is evil, God's judgment is comprehensive. And he makes no mistakes as he acts out his comprehensive, detailed judgment. In the day of judgment, mankind will be able to offer no excuses for their action or inaction. He's a perfect personal judge, and his judgment is thorough. Look at chapter 11 and verse 9 and 10. His judgment is not only comprehensive, his judgment is certain. It's certain. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. We often forget that the Bible says that the average life of a man is three score and ten or seventy years old. And we know, as the book of Hebrews says, that it's appointed unto man once to die and then there will be immediate judgment. No man can escape it. Regardless how they live now, God's judgment is certain. And so he encourages a young man in here, follow your dreams. Go grab life. Remember, eat, drink, and be merry. Live life. Follow your dreams. Live life to the fullest. Go grab all that you can grab in the way that he's made you. Whatever your hand finds to do, do with all your might. But always know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart and remove sinful things that cause your body pain. For the believer, that's not 
an agonizing paradox. Live life to the fullest, but understand you're going to be judged. For us, it's a great delight. Because understanding that we'll be judged, well, that's certain and it's going to be comprehensive for sure. But as we fear God and keep his commandments, which is the whole purpose of life, we'll be able to go out now and live our dreams, grab life by the throat, so to speak, and, and, and enjoy all these good things that God's given us, only doing it according to the word of God, which is the will of God. And so when judgment comes, there's no fear. Amen. There's no fear. Of course, the Apostle John tells us that in 1 John chapter 4, there is no fear in love. For perfect love casts out fear. Right. We don't fear judgment, but certainly the promised, concise and comprehensive and clear judgment of God is somewhat of a guardrail for us. But, but if we're living life according to the will of God, go live life. Go live life. And enjoy life. Let life take you as far as she'll take you. But live it according to the will of God. And because his judgment's certain. One author said in relationship to this reality that God's judgment is certain that a, a proper philosophy of life requires living with eternity in sight. And true happiness and contentment now is only possible with that view of eternity in mind. And this certain judgment, or coming judgment, also should remind us that God will judge with certainty all that is wrong in our world. The Apostle John says the world is passing away and the lusts thereof. But he that abides in the will of God abides forever. God will judge. Look at chapter 8 and verse 11 with me. All that's wrong in the world is wrong that is short-lived. In light of eternity, my friends, it's short-lived. In light of the average lifespan of a man being 70 years, all that's wrong in the world is, is wrong that's lived with tremendous brevity. Life is a vapor. It appears for a little while, and it, and it passes away, and you don't need to fear. Where's God's judgment in all this? It's coming, and it's coming quickly. Chapter 8 and verse 11, because... The sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly. Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to evil. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly but it will not be well for the evil man and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. It's certain, it's clear, it's comprehensive, and it's imminent for any man. Right? Don't boast of tomorrow. So God is our creator and a loving one he is, a beautiful one he is. He's our gracious, loving, perfect sovereign. He is our personal judge, the judge of all the world. And understanding that makes life, gives life a little bit more sense to live. It's not all chaos. It's not all going to be left undone. And... Solomon finishes by explaining to us very clearly that God is our personal supreme reality. He is our personal supreme reality. Dr. Michael Barrett, as I've told you in his theology of God in the book of Ecclesiastes written in 1997, says that man's inability to fully know is a prominent theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. Whether it's the phrase, 
asking questions about life in the book or about the future in the book, seven times he emphasizes in the book of Ecclesiastes that man has an inability to fully know. And that should bring him peace, not unrest. Because God fully knows. If you take notes, chapter 6 and verse 12, chapter 9 and verse 1, chapter 9 and verse 10, and chapter 9 and verse 12, chapter 10 and verse 14, and chapter 11 and verse 2, and chapter 11 and verse 6, this is where this reality that man's inability to fully know is just our inability to fully know, but to underpin that God does fully know. And he is our supreme reality. And the preacher of the book, right? The teacher of the book, Solomon, is calling for all of us to, again, trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and not lean on our own understanding. He's found out for himself, Barrett says, that trying to figure out at times what God is doing all around us can be useless because the thousands of details and whys are endless and life is too short for that. And his remedy is keep living and keep fearing God. Keep living and keep fearing God. Chapter 12 and verse number 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Certainly all is vanity, but do what? Right? Again, the conclusion, fear God and keep his commandments. And my friends, fearing means trusting him concerning everything that is uncertain in your life. Things about life that defy explanation are themselves evidence of the Lord God who made things that way. Barrett goes on to say the fact that we cannot understand all or alter his purposes is designed to draw us to him rather than to pull us away from him. God does it and men should fear before him. Chapter 3 and verse 14. And faith, a healthy faith, rests in the fact that God will do all things and is doing all these things well. Over to chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. I think here we find that God is our supreme reality, that actually fearing him in this way will help us worship. Will help us worship him. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools where they do not know they are doing evil. Do not, the, do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. And when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. Verse 7 really summarizes everything with required self-restraint, sincere submission, and spiritual sacrifice with the command, fear God. And even in the context of worship, all these things and reality, understanding, of re, understanding God as our supreme reality brings about a conscious awareness of how great God is and will generate a worship of reverence and awe and respect a true and proper fear of God teaches that worship is service to him and not entertainment for us. Barrett goes on to say that fearing God is defense for the judgment. Defense for the judgment. What happens in eternity? 
is infinitely more important than what happens in life. To fear God is to know God as he has revealed himself. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7, also written by Solomon, says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Fearing God is knowing and wanting to know more about him and to get his take on life and eternity, not our own. Fearing God, then, has the beginning, middle, and end of life importance. It is the only thing that will do a man good in life and even better in death, Solomon says. I was reading a sermon series by Chuck Swindoll. Many of you are familiar with him. He says in relationship to this reality of the supreme reality of who God is to us, Ecclesiastes shows us a man who, who lived through his process of life and came out on the other side with a wiser, more seasoned perspective. And when we're surrounded by the temptation to proclaim life's ultimate emptiness, we can find in Ecclesiastes, a vision tempered by experience and ultimately seen through divinely colored lenses. Life is destined to remain unsatisfying apart from our recognition of God's supreme intervention. It only remains to be seen whether or not we will place our trust in his sure and able hands. Life is confusing for a lot of us in the auditorium right now for a lot of different ways, quite frankly. As you minister to me and I minister to you and we get to know each other better, life can become radically uncertain and therefore equally confusing. But at some point, we've got to step back, draw the circle around ourselves, understand what it means to fear God, to know God, so that we can trust God, so that we can live God's will. And that's got to be a place that brings us great delight and great rest. And I know for many of us that it does do that. But as we'll see later on in the book, as we get into the specific study, does Solomon ever emphasize in his book how important it is to make sure that you don't go life living life alone. Can you think of a text? It's often used in wedding ceremonies. Right? Can you remember? Little Sunday school class here. Can you tell us the text? Awkward moment on live stream. Maybe someone's trying to tell us through live stream. Are you there yet? Something about a threefold cord. Remember? It's not quickly broken. Right? Who gets the teacher's gold star sticker today? Jacob, thank you. All right. Chapter 4 and verse 12. Let's look at that real quickly. I know we're talking about God and we're talking about Him as Creator and as Sovereign and as Judge and as our supreme reality. And we, 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 hang, we hang there. We, 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 we need to live there. And if one can overpower Him who is alone, two can resist Him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. I don't know that, that God ever intends us, though we know all these things about him, and he alone is sufficient. I think there's tremendous encouragement here from Solomon as we'll continue in the, in the study of the book, that, that he estranged himself from people and began to live life alone, apart from his God and apart from the people of God. 
and it brought his life to great ruin. So for those of you who are younger, as well as those of us who are older, fear God and keep his commandments. Again, as we emphasized last week, in your youthful years, know him, walk with him, grab life, do life, Trust Him as Creator. Trust Him as Sovereign. Trust Him as Judge. And trust Him as your own supreme reality. And do this together with faithful people. It is, it's incumbent upon us, folks, to do this together with faithful people. I, I, didn't, I didn't ask permission, but I'm just going to, you know, when my dad died, Gordon was a tremendous comfort to me. His dad recently died. I tried to be a great comfort to him. But when you're close to your dads like that, and you figure you're at a point of life when you need your dad the most, and there's a time to live and a time to die that God's ordained for them, Life gets radically confusing. You can, even as a guy that walks with God, get into a tremendous spiritual funk. I know that Gordon walks with God. I try to do the same thing. We try to devour God's Word, spend time with Him in prayer. But even at a time like that, I'll get a call from Gordon. He says, I'm just not making it today. I am not doing good today. Well, he's not a newbie in the, in the Christian world, right? He's a solid guy that's given me help, as many of you have given me help. So we get together and we weep together and we pray together and we discuss God's word together. That was essential time for me. And I trust essential time for him. These are things that we know we trust in as. God who's sovereign and a God who's a perfect judge and again and a God who is a supreme reality for both of us and we know his word and we're but boy it was sure nice to sit down <laughs> and weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice God's never intended us to go this confusing life alone Amen. definitely not apart from him definitely not apart from his word and definitely not apart from each other A book again that I quoted last week, and I'll quote again as we close this morning that many of you have enjoyed, and I encourage you to enjoy it um, on your own. A.W. Tozer says, the man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. For he sees it once that these have to do with matters which at the most cannot concern him for very long. But even if the multiple burdens of time may be lifted from him, the, the one mighty single burden of eternity begins to press down upon him with a weight more crushing than all the woes of the world piled one upon the other. And that mighty burden is his obligation to God. It includes an instant and lifelong duty to love God with every power of mind, soul, and body and to obey Him perfectly and to worship Him acceptably. God is creator. He is sovereign. He is judge. And He is our supreme reality. And the, the only way to trust Him is to know Him. The Bible says the only way that we can know Him is by knowing His Son. Jesus said, I am the only way, the only truth, and the only life. No man comes unto the Father but through me. So as we continue to go through and we begin to dig into chapter 1 next week, the book of Ecclesiastes, now that our overview is, is done, I, I, just, I just need to uh, share my heart real quickly here that in order to understand this book, you have to understand again 
the God of this book, and you have to understand the God of this book's Son. 1 Corinthians 2.14 is very clear that the person who does not know Jesus cannot discern the things of God, and there'll be foolishness to you. This is not a book of wisdom for the faint of heart or for the insincere of heart. In order to understand any portion of Scripture, let alone one that's more meaty, you have to, to know Jesus. Not just intellectually, but you have to know Him and Him alone volitionally. So I would ask you, have you, have you come to a point in your life where you've been convicted of your own brokenness, of your own sin, and have you begged God for forgiveness for that sin? And have you looked to Jesus alone as the only person, divine person, that could die for the whole of your sin? And have you repented from your sin and thrown yourself in the mercies of Jesus Christ and begged him to be your Lord and Savior? Have you done that? Have you done that? I would ask you to, to consider doing that if you haven't yet. Because if not, it's, it's, it's for your own soul's good. It's for the sake of eternity too, right? But certainly you're not going to understand this book unless you understand the God of this book through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not going to understand the word of God until you understand the living word of God, Jesus Christ himself. And if you come to Jesus Christ, not only in that way, but just him and him alone, just apart from anything you could add to him, anything that you would take away from him, have you come to him and him alone and uh, surrendered your life to him by repenting from your sins and placing your faith in him? If you haven't, uh, today's the day of salvation for you. You need to be born again. And that's where we'll begin to understand who God is in these ways, and then be able to work our way through this book together. Okay? So let's pray. With our heads bowed, I just, I feel compelled this morning just to maybe help those who know enough about Jesus now to to decide what they're going to do with him. And some of you have been coming for quite a while, and we could not be more delighted. It's so wonderful to have all of you. But some have heard so much about Jesus Christ, I I wonder if if, if it's not today where it's your opportunity to just say, I'm done with myself, and I need Christ. In your heart, you know there's a void. You know there's an empty spot. You've tried a lot of philosophies and maybe even a number of religions, and you're still coming up empty, and you're still searching. And I just want your heart to be at peace with the peace of God who is Jesus, okay? And if you really want to know him, the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Just tell him in your heart. It's not a problem for me, Lord, right now to admit that I'm a sinner, that I've violated and broken your law. It's my sin, Lord, that put your son Jesus on the cross. And I thank you that he died for me. And Lord, I put away my religion, I put away my good works, I put away and confess and repent of my own sin. And I realize this morning it's only Jesus and Jesus alone that can save me. I'm broken and I need fixed. Lord Jesus, please come into my heart. I beg you, be Lord of my life. I turn from my sin and I place my faith in you and you alone. Lord, save me. As we said earlier, as Paul says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, and the Lord's not deaf, and he heard you. 
And it is that simple, but yet that profound. The only way to be made right with God is through his son, and you've done that now. If you prayed that prayer this morning, to trust the Lord Jesus as your Savior, maybe for the first time, turn your heart over to him, not just your mind, turn your heart over to him. With no one looking around, would you just slip up your hand? I'd like to not mention you by name, but just pray for you this week. Anyone at all? I'd like to pray for you. You don't have to slip up your hand. That doesn't save you. You prayed and you meant that. God already saved you. If you're comfortable maybe telling someone that you came with today, maybe talking it out with them, maybe you think, well, I'm almost persuaded. I'd like to know more about the sufficiency of Jesus, my need for him. I would encourage you to talk with us as pastors. If you don't know anyone here, um, talk with someone who brought you. Okay? But I encourage you again not to boast of what tomorrow will bring because you don't know but to turn to him today. All right? Father in heaven, we thank you that you are our sovereign and we thank you that you are our creator and our judge and our supreme reality. And we thank you, Lord, for inspiring Solomon to write these sobering words at the end of his life, though he had come to the end of his life having made many mistakes. We thank you that by your grace and his life, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was able to pen these words of wisdom for our understanding so that we might know how to fear God, fear you, and to keep your commandments and to live life that's full of uncertainty with certainty. So give us wisdom as we continue to go through this book of wisdom and how to apply it in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.